Well, hello there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Livewire. We have a really swell radio show in store for you. The theme that we picked this week is Finding Your Voice. All of our guests have done that in one way or another. Paul F. Tompkins is one of those guests. He, of course, is a comedian, actor. His voice is well-known if you listen to podcasts or if you watch the show BoJack Horseman. Also, Anurata Bhagwati is going to come by as well. She has written a memoir called Unbecoming. It is about her time as a U.S. Marine, something that is never easy but particularly challenging if you are a woman. And then one of our favorite voices on the show, musician Patterson Hood. You may know him from his solo work or from his other band, Drive-By Truckers. As I mentioned, the theme is finding your voice. What we thought we would do was ask the audience at the Alberta Rose Theater to fill out these little audience cards and tell us what their personal catchphrase would be. And as we often do at the top of the show, I was talking to our announcer, Elena Passarello, about how I would answer that same question about what my personal catchphrase would be. Take a listen. I was thinking about my answer to this question today, like what would my personal catchphrase be? I'm not proud of it. I think it would be, my email is being super crazy. And that's the one I use when I owe someone an email for like weeks or months. Elena, I'm so sorry I haven't emailed you back about dinner. I know you needed to know the details, but just my email is being super crazy. I like that it turns your email into like its own sentient being. Yeah, like, it's being super crazy <laughs> it has right nothing now. nothing to do with you. My email was actually legitimately super crazy. I went out of the country and I wanted to create one of those out of office replies. Okay. So that if somebody emailed me, they would know that I was going to literally be in the Australian outback. Okay. And unreachable. But I don't really know how to set those things up. So I created a rule in my email that for some reason sent out an old out-of-office reply that told people I was out of the office and not coming back for three months from now. And it went to everyone in my inbox and multiple times. It emailed it back to me 140 times before I could stop the program. People were like emailing me like, are you okay? I was mortified. <laughs> then a couple people were like, okay, cool. We'll see you in three months. And I realized like, this is the closest I'll ever come to faking my own death. <laughs> and it felt amazing. How about you? Do you have a catchphrase? Uh, I have a, I, I made up a fake catchphrase once as a joke that has kind of turned into my catchphrase. Okay. So um, when you teach college, there's no bell and you have to say something when class is over, like class dismissed. And so just my thing I always just sort of say is kind of ironically, I just go, follow your dreams, and then class is over. What a pep talk. Yeah, it's like, okay. For the students of Oregon State University. <laughs> you have to rewrite all your papers. Goodbye, follow your dreams. Uh, and I, but I've been saying, I've been teaching for like seven years now, and I say it all the time, and uh, now uh, I don't really believe it. I don't believe in telling people to follow their dreams. What is tuition at Oregon State University? And could they consider a reduction if it's your professor <laughs> says, I don't believe in following your dreams? The tuition cost is your optimism. Yeah. That's what it costs. Uh, no, I mean, it's just like, it's... <laughs> I believe in having dreams. I just don't believe in somebody standing in front of you and vaguely telling you to follow them, right? right. It's just too, it's just not enough. Like, I believe in practical steps toward achieving reasonable goals. Right. If you thought that was going to win the audience back, I yeah, think no, you. Yeah, it didn't work. It didn't work. It's greatly overestimated how persuasive that would be. But the thing that now, like, all of my students, they've started, like, if they see Follow Your Dreams on, like, a bumper sticker or a button or... <laughs> like a teddy bear yeah. wearing a t-shirt that says it, like, at the airport. I get them as gifts. So my office is full of all this Follow Your Dreams paraphernalia, and now at Oregon State University, I, hater of dreams... <laughs> Own more follow your dreams paraphernalia than any live, laugh, love person in right. the entire state of Oregon. So it's my catchphrase. What about the audience here at the Alberta Rose Theater? What are, what are they uh, sending in as their sort of personal catchphrases? Uh, here's one from Britta. Britta's personal catchphrase is no regerts. <laughs> Do you know the backstory on that one? No. The, famously, there's a photo online of a guy with a big, huge tattoo. I believe it's across his chest. 
the uh, idea was to emphasize not regretting things. No regrets, but it appears to be spelled regerts. That's so beautiful, actually. What else? Uh, here, here's one from uh, Melody. I'm not hip. I'm hip replacement. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely in a commercial that I see during Jeopardy. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Thankfully, we have somebody just off stage who knows all about finding their voice and also knows about how challenging it can be. She started finding hers when she dropped out of an Ivy League grad program to join, wait for it, the Marines. The highs and lows of that journey are detailed in her new book, Unbecoming, a memoir of disobedience. Please welcome Anurada Bhagwati to Livewire. Anurada, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, okay, uh, in reading this book, you come off as a very studious kid. Like you were straight A's, played basketball, you uh, went to Yale, right? And then uh, Columbia? Yeah, I had very strict immigrant parents, and that was kind of the path I was set on. Uh, it wasn't exactly my choice, but it was, it was just how I was raised. And, and well, what, would have your, what do you think you would have done if left to your own devices? I think I would have joined the circus. I really, I discovered flying trapeze uh, maybe three or four years ago, and I thought if I knew about this when I was 15, <laughs> I never would have joined the Marines. <laughs> For real. Was it really when you saw the movie G.I. Jane that you started to have serious thoughts about joining the Marines, or at least the idea sort of sparked in your mind? I love that the audience knows that movie. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there's something about watching to me more buzzing her head. I, I, it was it was pretty extraordinary. It was also like a complete fiction and fantasy that entire screenplay. Um, but I was taken with that for sure. And like, you know, it's like, oh, I can be a Navy SEAL, which was at the time. I know I could not be a Navy SEAL. Like, you know, it was a myth, but I was yeah very excited about that. An idea started in your head, and then you show up for this like Marines workout session in Central Park. <laughs> Yeah, I met a few Navy SEALs, you know, they, they'd retired, but they were still all gung-ho and training a bunch of civilians, you know, like brokers and stuff from Wall Street. And I was like the youngest person and, um, you yeah, the only one who, 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 you know, didn't have like knee replacements and hip replacements and doing all this, all this stuff. I was like, this is amazing. I want to do more. I want to do more. Um, yeah. And, and ended up at a Navy recruiting station. Yeah. What was the reception like there for you? I mean, I was more than welcome. I mean, I think it, it, still the military is mostly male. And so every time a woman walks into a recruiting station, you're kind of like, you know, a, a toy. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> you know, like you're, you're sort of welcomed and, and not very welcome at the same time. But um, like for me, the Navy recruiting station wasn't impressive at all because I was, I was picturing Navy SEALs and I, there were no Navy SEALs in that recruiting station, right? It was like very soft, very travel agency-like. And so I was like, I do, I do not want to like take a carnival cruise, right? I want to be, I want to be thrashed. I want to, you know, I want to do all this stuff I, that the SEALs were talking to me about. Yeah. Uh, we're talking to Anurada Bhagwati. Uh, her book is Unbecoming, a memoir of disobedience. Um, you did get thrashed eventually. Your time for thrashing would come in officer candidacy school, which is like boot camp, I guess, if you're, if you're on the track to become an officer. Yeah. It's in Quantico, Virginia, next to the FBI Academy. And, uh, yeah, that's where officers for the Marines are trained. And, I mean, that sounds like that was an extremely intense experience for you. One of the things, though, that you, you write in the book that you noticed right away that was off-putting to you was something called the flexed arm hang. Can you explain that to people that are unfamiliar? Yeah, so the Marine Corps is the only branch of service which doesn't require push-ups as an upper body strength skill. So we do pull-ups. Of course, we just means men do pull-ups. Things have changed a little bit in the last 20 years so that women are encouraged to try to do pull-ups, but they're not required to do pull-ups still. So when I, you know, I'd, I'd been doing all this, all this strength training over the years and playing all these sports, I was like, what is this? This is ridiculous. And so a flexed arm hang, you basically hang on a bar. She's uh, demonstrating <laughs> with the microphone, which is going to be hard on a radio show, like but so. you just hang... <laughs> You hang on the bar with your arm flexed, but you're not responsible to pull your head above right. the you, bar. You jump up and you just hang until you can hang no longer. 
And it's sort of humiliating when you think about it. Rather than, you know, using your strength to pull your body up, lowering it all the way down and pulling it back up. So that was my first formal segregation experience in terms of physical training. And I didn't understand why that existed. Because I, I had grown up with female athletes who were, I mean, super human. And, you know, they would be able to do many, many pull-ups and more. Um, I didn't understand why the Marine Corps didn't understand that. It's like, you guys are like the elite force, right? You should get that women are athletes today. If you could set the rules, would it be that the physical requirements would just be the same across the board, regardless of a person's gender? Just you got to do X number of pull-ups, run in a certain time. If you can do it, you're in. If you can't do it, you're out. I would, yeah. Um, and that's not a very popular opinion um, among, uh, well, politicians or women, a lot of women, in fact. Um, it's very popular among men, though, who uh, resent the fact that there are double standards in the military. Why are you siding with them? Why am I siding with them? <laughs> You're like, it's not popular with women, but guys who don't want women in the service, they're into it. That's a controversial stance. You know, I, I, I just have seen women excel at anything that they put their minds to. I saw it in the civilian world. I saw it in the military, too. But when you're not encouraged to do what the guys are doing, why would you do it, right? I mean, you have to sort of think outside the box to even get on the pull-up bar. You have to think outside the box to, to train to run as fast as the men are required to do. It's not that women can't do it. You know, I've seen women who are sort of average athletes become phenomenal athletes just by training. And so it's, it's really about shifting the conversation to realize women's potential to be as good as they want to be. I would also point out that there are many men, there are many men who could not do the flex storm hang, and I am one of them. I am at the top of the list. Uh, this is Livewire from PRI. We have to take a very quick break. We are talking to Anurada Bhagwati. Her book is Unbecoming, a memoir of disobedience, and we will be right back. Livewire is supported in part by Fully. Based in Portland, Oregon, Fully is an amazing company that sells and distributes things that will help you feel healthier while you are being productive doing your work. How do I know this? Well, because I use a Jarvis standing desk from Fully when I am on stage recording Livewire. That's right. I can set that thing at any different height that works for me in that moment. It keeps the blood flowing keeps uh, me feeling engaged. I think you can hear the results, my friends, coming through the radio and the podcast. If you would like to stay healthy and productive while you're being productive at your work, whether it's at home or in the office, you got to check out what the folks at Fully are doing. Go to fully.com slash livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash livewire. They've also got the Cooper Standing Desk Converter, that gives you the ability to set your desk at any height you want as well and just uh, figure out a spot that works for you. I promise it'll make a difference in your, in your work productivity and how good you'll feel at the end of the day. I know it has for me. I also use the TikTok stool when I'm at home doing all of my uh, radio show writing projects. Uh, it's made such a difference for me and for our whole Livewire staff, and I know you're going to have the same experience. So again, Find out what Fully has got going on by heading over to Fully, that's F-U-L-L-Y, dot com slash Livewire. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank. Over there, that's Elena Passarello, and we are at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland talking to author and activist Anurada Bhagwati. Uh, your book, Unbecoming, is about your time in the U.S. Uh, Marines. Um, when you show up for Officer Candidacy School in Quantico, Virginia, your drill sergeant just starts berating you in that way that they always seem to do in movies and TV. Is there any practical reason for them being so mean? <laughs> you know, you get kind of addicted to it after a while uh, as a recruit, I think. I, I love that woman. Um, she was so scary. She was a Marine Corps legend, and she had bright red hair, and when she got angry, which was all the time, her, her skin, she was white, she would turn red, and, and her veins would kind of stick out, like bright green, blue. It was amazing. She would make people weep, men and women, and so, um, yes, they do have to be that mean. So there is a reason for that. Like, that actually equips you as a soldier to, to I, what, accomplish what you're supposed to do in really stressful circumstances? Yeah, I mean, the drill instructors are simulating fog of war, 
right? Like when everything is going wrong, everything is in, in the barracks and, you know, on the, on the drill field, it's all about screaming at us and making us move really fast and doing ridiculous things like stripping to our underwear and putting on our uniform again, like again and again and again and again until you know, you're losing your mind, but you do it so quickly, you don't even have to think about it anymore. So it, it does have a purpose. It works. That's how we make Marines. <laughs> is that a good thing? Is it a good thing? It's a good thing if, if you want the military that we have. Um, because you write a lot in this book about how dysfunctional the Marines are, particularly as it pertains to women and women being assaulted and marginalized. And that's something that you experienced personally. Is all of that kind of culture about yelling and hoorah and everything, I mean, is it, is it part of why that culture exists that you found uh, so kind of frustrating to be a part of or to be uh, involved with? I think you can be fierce and you can build people into really uh, physical and mentally tough warriors without being a misogynist or a homophobe or a racist. That, that's the difference, <laughs> right? And so, I mean, you see this in, in our culture, our American culture across the board where, you know, male athletes are trained to, like, they're incentivized to be stronger with misogynistic terminology. Like, that, that's nonsense, right? We don't need any of that. That's just bad training, right? So, um, you know, we, we, I saw this with our drill instructors. I saw this throughout, throughout Marine Corps training, that, like, the two could not be delinked, right? <laughs> yeah. It was always, always one and the same. Um, can, for folks, which would be, I'm going to say 99% of our audience who are not in the Marines, can, can you kind of just like explain a little bit what the dynamic is that you went through as a female in the Marines? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're sexually objectified from the beginning because there's so few of you, right? So it's like, it's, you're just a, in a sea of men, um, regardless of your rank. For, for a female officer, which I was, you know, I was leading mostly male troops, and so there's a, there's a rank dynamic, you know, I'm called ma'am, but there's still kind of, um, you know, it's little, you, you stick out like a sore thumb. You're just an oddity. You know, at best, you're just an oddity. And you sort of have to prove your worth from the ground up and prove that you're kind of, that you have to prove that you're a Marine, right? Um, a lot of guys are trained because there's segregated training in the Marine Corps. It's the only branch of service which separates men and women in basic training. You know, as if we're like living in another century. Men are taught that women are weak and nasty and don't belong. And women are also taught that they are weaker than the men. And so both women and men fail from the beginning. This sounds almost like, I mean, is this a cultural problem that exists before all of these people get to the Marines, and then that's just kind of reinforcing it? I mean, is this something that we need to try to cure more, like on a larger scale in this country? I mean, this might be off topic, but we live in a very racially segregated country right now. So, it, it, you know, you see similarities in that way. I don't know that we live in a, a, a gender segregated country in quite the same way, but anytime we're separating people's deliberately, institutionally, and then expecting everyone to get along and respect one another or accept one another. I mean, we're setting ourselves up for failure. Now you are somebody who, you're an activist, you, you've kind of taken on this role of, of, of really applying pressure to the, to the military, particularly the Marines, over uh, gender discrimination and mistreatment of female soldiers. What is the response from fellow Marines? When they see you on TV, you know, advocating for equality? Like, what's their response? It's mixed. You know, there are a lot of people who are serving in the Marines and in the military at large who are grateful that somebody is speaking out. And there's a growing number of us that are speaking out. It's very hard in the military. You know, you don't, you don't have the same First Amendment rights when you, when you sign up for service, right? You can't just say anything you want. You have to follow orders. Um, and so many of us effectively turn into whistleblowers when we just kind of state what's happening. You know, uh, you know, hey, sexual assault should not be swept under the rug. You shouldn't be sexually harassing, you know, a, a fellow woman marine. It, it's, it's, it's basic stuff as far as I'm concerned. Military leadership um, has never been fierce enough on any of these issues, right? And so they, they take most of their cues from civilian leaders, from members of Congress, from the media, from the president, when things well, that are go working well. well. Exactly. In this climate, you know, things are very risky, um, particularly when you have political leaders who are you know, happily talking about the assault and harassment of women. Um, 
Do you regret the decision to be, do you wish you would have become a circus performer <laughs> instead of a Marine? No, I, I, I learned so much as a Marine. I, I met, also met the most incredible people, mostly enlisted Marines, but uh, whom I never would have met, you know, in the, like the bubble of New York City or anywhere in the Ivy League. Um, really talented, uh, humble people who taught me how to work in teams. And, um, you know, I learned, I learned how to be a leader, and I'm, and I'm so grateful to them. Uh, well, the book is is really great. We recommend it. It's Unbecoming, a Memoir of Disobedience. Anuradha Bhagwati, thanks for being on Livewire. Thank you. Hey, it's Luke. Are you a subscriber to the Livewire newsletter? The newsletter is the best way to stay in the loop on our show, like when we're releasing new podcasts, uh, when we might be recording the show in a city near you. Plus, the newsletter includes awesome photos from our live recordings so you can see what we all looked like when we were making this radio show and podcast. If you would like to sign up, just click on the Stay Informed button on our website over there at livewireradio.org. This is Livewire Radio. We are talking about finding your voice this week, and we asked the uh, audience here at the Alberta Rose Theater uh, what their personal catchphrase would be. Uh, they filled out these little cards. Elena Pazzarello, our announcer, you've got some of those cards. What are the catchphrases of this fine assembly of public radio listeners? Uh, here's one from Nick. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Which Nick says is usually said right before something dumb gets done and something goes horribly wrong. <laughs> that is kind of an approach I have, which is, well, my version of that is, it'll be okay. If you, if you say that, if you're sort of a sunny optimist, you've got to make sure you deploy it at the right time. Yeah. Because it can really ring hollow otherwise. And not to, like, belabor the point, but I feel like it will all be okay is a follow your dreams caliber statement. <laughs> it's just... It's just like, it's just too vague. There's no way of knowing, you know, like, uh, and it could, you know, bite you in the butt. Yeah, and as it has. <laughs> uh, what else? Carly's catchphrase is, what's the Wi-Fi password? <laughs> I'm to get that tattooed on my body like the guy in Memento. So like wherever I wake up, whatever's happened, I'll just be like, oh yeah, I get on the Wi-Fi. You got to get on the Wi-Fi. <laughs> All right, one more. Okay, one more personal catchphrase from Delia. Just let it go. It's not worth arguing about. Accept the person for who he, she is and focus on what you like about the person. But also, if a person is just a generally toxic and negative person, don't keep engaging with that person. Yeah. Catchy. Catchy. Uh, we are talking about finding your voice this hour. And if you've turned on a television or a podcast lately, there's like a 90% chance you've heard our next guest. He's part of the fine podcast, Freedom. He's also on Comedy Bang Bang. He's Mr. Peanut Butter on the animated TV show, BoJack Horseman. Uh, and he was on HBO's Mr. Show. And by the way, that is like 4% of his resume. But we need to bring him out here and stop reading about all the things that he's done. Please welcome Paul F. Tompkins back to Livewire. <laughs> Paul, welcome back to the program. Luke, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me back. I think the perfect description of my career was the smattering of applause that greeted each of my individual credits. <laughs> if you add them nobody, up... Nobody knows me from all things. Yeah. <laughs> if you stacked all of that applause... Each smattering right. atop another smattering, I would say it was a respectful amount of applause. Absolutely. <laughs> um, speaking of things that, that you have been doing for many years, the great show Comedy Bang Bang that you're on uh, celebrated its 10-year anniversary, and they did a 10-hour episode. Yeah. Uh, how grueling was that? And I mean for the listeners. There were many, many people who... <laughs> who were communicating to, to various uh, of us who were guests on the show that they were doing this, they were going to listen to the whole thing, but they really were treating it 
like it was a task that they had been assigned. <laughs> and they're like, okay, um, I'm going to start listening to this, and uh, I, I, there's no way I can get through the whole thing in one day, but uh, I guess I'll take a few days and um, you know, listen during my commute. It's like, I, you don't have to do this. <laughs> you can listen to it you know, one hour a week for the next 10 weeks. Like, there's no... It's not like a giant... It's not like an 11-pound steak that you have to eat all of it so that it's free and you get your picture on the wall. Right. It's already free. You can That's listen right. to it. Enjoy as much yeah. of this as you would like. But what my favorite thing about that, that was, uh, the, you know, Scott Ackerman, the host of Comedy Bang Bang, that was his idea to make it 10 hours long. And um, <laughs> it forced Stitcher to uh, modify their technology. Like, they did not, they did not have the capability, nobody had the capability to host a 10-hour podcast, and so they had to come up with new software to host that show. Um, you wrote a review of a Trader Joe's in L.A. <laughs> in, I would say, the style of the filmmaker Werner Herzog. That's exactly right. And... In fact, Werner Herzog recently found out about it and loved it. Yeah. That and was weird. <laughs> that was weird. weird. I've been doing this Werner Herzog impression for years. And um, on, a, on a, a live episode of the Andy Daly podcast pilot project, I did Werner Herzog reviewing this Trader Joe's. And um, it's my, my local Trader Joe's in Los Angeles. And uh, uh, a journalist named Kurt Anderson was interviewing him. Studio 360. Studio 360. And is distributed by our same distributor. It's a oh, fellow so show. I apologize. I, yeah. I didn't realize. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Kurt played the audio for Werner Herzog. And I have not listened to the audio of Werner Herzog listening to it because I'm too scared to listen to it. Well, Paul F. Tompkins, we actually have the Werner Herzog's... Uh, Trader Joe's review uh, here. Would you mind favoring us? May I, Luke, read it from my phone? You because brought I your have it. own copy. I'm going to read it from the Yelp uh, <laughs> website because I posted it to Yelp. There's, there's two reviews under the name Werner H. on Yelp. <laughs> and this is the Trader Joe's review. <clears throat> Madness reigns. The first challenge your soul must endure is the parking lot. You wait with your vehicle half-blocking traffic, creating a perfect circular vortex of anger that encompasses the street and the entrance to the store. Once you attain access to the lot, you discover that this is a false achievement. Other motorists stop and start with no apparent thought or plan. Turns once begun are quickly abandoned. The drivers seemingly immune to geometry. At last, a space opens up, but the price is having to enter the store. Inside, human beings scramble like beetles whose rock has been upended. Though the aisles are wide, it is impossible to avoid physical contact with your fellow shoppers. It is a grotesque parody of the bazaar at Marrakesh, as if dumb animals had been granted only the amount of sentience required to mock humanity. <laughs> the aisles are not labeled. You must search for every item. The constant walking up and down causes a numbness that borders on profound despair. Your conscious mind registers merely annoyance, impatience, but on a cellular level, your body cries out in weariness. The fatigue you feel is a warning. Millions of years of evolution trying to save you from becoming mired in the tar, from sinking into the warm blackness and ultimately being reclaimed by the earth itself. Be sure to get the dark chocolate peanut butter cups. They are right by the register. Five stars. Paul F. Tompkins, here on Livewire Radio. Now, I have not listened to 
his reaction to it. I've read the, I've read it in print. I've read like a transcription. My favorite part is uh, he ended it. He was very approving, but he ended it with my congratulations. <laughs> that is very Herzogian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How long does it take you to write something like that? Do you work on that for an afternoon? Are you just kind of like dashing it up? I wrote that backstage at the show because I knew I needed, I didn't have like a, a bit to go out with. And I was like, oh, I did this once before. Why don't I do that? And so uh, both times, actually, the first time it was a review of the, we, it was a comedy bang bang tour. And we stayed at this uh, terrible hotel. <laughs> and I heard Scott talking about it. Um, in his monologue at the top of the show. And so as I was waiting to go on, I wrote a review of the hotel as Werner and, and read that there. Um, so it's, uh, it, it comes together pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of your characters, I feel, uh, or a lot of the podcasts that you're part of, there's a lot of historical stuff going on. I feel like there's like references to history and just like a lot of perspective. Are you a fan of history? Or do you read about it? Are you curious about it? I think I'm more a fan of trivia, and that's the, it's the stuff that sticks in my brain. You know what I mean? And so um, there are certain there are certain references that will uh, come back again and again. But uh, it would be a, a lie to say that I'm a student of history I, because there's there are actual history students. <laughs> And um, I'm not looking to get called out and have some fight in the parking lot. Um, so yeah, I, I think I, I just, uh, I have these, these certain things that always stuck in my brain from when I was, a, from when I was in school and, and, you know, or if I hear about a weird thing, it just stays in there and then I end up using it out of desperation. <laughs> I, uh, listeners of this show will know that I have exactly four jokes in me. And I try to make them about, uh, I try to wait a quarter of the show to do one of my jokes, and then another till half point, I do another of my jokes. You seem to have a more unlimited amount of creativity than a lot of people, because I listen to a lot of the shows you do. Mm -hmm. You are consistently hilarious. It's often improvised. Uh, do you, I mean, where, the, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but what is, the, where is it coming from? What is the reserve? Do you ever think, I just made that joke on a different show? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And the funny thing is, is that I will uh, sometimes, uh, by the nature of, uh, of recording um, stuff in advance, sometimes I will make a joke on a, on a podcast of my own that I recorded five months ago, and then a thing that I recorded last week on somebody else's show, I make pretty much the same joke, and they come out the same week. So it just <laughs> looks like, oh, I guess he's got his one joke. <laughs> but um, yeah, there are, certain, there are certain things that come back, and it's, it's the... That is the hardest thing to, to stay on top of in a medium where you are talking off the top of your head uh, over and over and over again. It's, it's, the, it's a fine line between this is a fun referential thing for me to bring back a lot and I am literally just doing the same joke that I already did. Uh, we're talking to Paul F. Tompkins here on Livewire yeah, Radio. Oh, yeah, you're telling them. Yeah. Uh, I and millions, well, actually, I think 1.32 million or so, but who's counting? People follow you on Twitter. And you recently hipped me uh, to the deep weirdness that is the character Charlie the Tuna. <laughs> I had no idea the backstory of the... I mean, I, yeah. as a kid, had seen ads, but the, the scales have fallen from my eyes regarding mm -hmm. the whole, I guess, conceit of Charlie. Can you yeah. explain? Charlie the Tuna was an advertising character who's come back now, I guess. Yeah. When I was a kid, there would be these commercials where this animated tuna <laughs> wanted very much to be slaughtered by Starkist and go in one of their cans. These aren't the words he used. But he wanted to get caught by... Starkist Fisherman and be rendered into Starkist Tuna. And Starkist Tuna turned him down. They said, sorry, Charlie, you are not, you are not up to our standards. And this frustrated this tuna so much. And he wore, um, he wore a beret and he wore like uh, horn rim glasses. And he was based on some famous uh, uh, jazz guy of the day. Um, and spoke in a sort of beatnik jive, which I don't remember. Um, 
And he went away for a while. And then he's back now. He came back in 1999, I think. Yeah, and he felt like it made him uncool. That he couldn't... Like, the only cool club he couldn't get into was the can, yeah. basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was also a typo in that tweet. That you went back and then you tweeted about it later about having a typo. Right. Which raises the question for me... Does it kill you to write a tweet that's very popular and realize there's a typo in it? Yeah, it does. Do you delete tweets? If I can catch it fast enough, yes. If it's just a typo and I can catch it fast enough, then you have people that want to tweet at you and saying, I saw that typo you made. Yeah. It's like, where do we go from here? <laughs> I, 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 this is, I'm not the government. I don't know what... Why are you... Why are you Holding my feet to the fire on this typo business. <laughs> it's not legislation. I just, yes. I saw that I made a mistake and I deleted it. But g good looking out. <laughs> there are, I think a lot of people, if you have a typo during a tweet, then if they can point it out to you, it's a way for them to interact with you, which they're excited about because they're fans of yours. And yet I noticed that you also had a whole thing going about those weird photos that we used to get in yes. like middle school or grade school where yes. they would superimpose you behind yourself. Yes. I don't know why they did this. I don't know when they realized we shouldn't be doing this anymore. <laughs> but it was, you... <laughs> the picture would be, in case you've never seen one of these, the picture would be like you, it's like smiling nicely, and then over your shoulder, just a ghost image of the front of your face like looking over at nothing very seriously like this <laughs> it was really str I don't know why and we I think as a kid I thought it was cool yeah. I oh, thought yeah. it looked cool I still kind of dig them I, I have to say I'm I've, I've googled around to see if I could get one where it's just me smiling uh, facing front and then the big head is my cat I always thought that Absolutely. that would look really good. Yes. <laughs> and the cat would be turned away from me, which would be very fitting Absolutely. for the cat, yeah. right? But, but here's the thing, Paul. People started getting at you in the comments and making fun of the picture you posted. Yeah. And then you started taking pictures of their Twitter profile, including their kids, and being like, make fun of these guys. Oh, yeah. This one guy, this guy made some comment, and I saw his avatar, which, by the way, I hate when people do this. His profile picture is four children. Well, I know you're not four children. <laughs> people have more than one person, much less other people as their picture. It drives me nuts. So these are clearly his children. And my response to him was to screen cap that and say, can I roast these ass now? <laughs> Have you gotten a response yet? To his credit, he said, yes, please. <laughs> but I didn't do it, because what am I, him? <laughs> Paul F. Tompkins, everybody. Right here on LiveWire. Support for Livewire comes from Alaska Airlines, offering flights with their global partners like Cathay Pacific, Emirates, Hainan Airlines, Japan Airlines, and Singapore Airlines to over 185 destinations in Asia. More information on how Alaska Airlines goes global at alaskaair.com. All right, Paul, uh, here at Livewire, we, of course, like to try to get to know our guests. Of course we do. As, <laughs> as well as we can. I feel like we're learning a lot about the way that you take on innocent children on Twitter. So that seems like a view into your mind. But I think that there's an even deeper level that we can achieve, uh, which is why here on stage, on the desk, I have an actual physical jar. It's got five questions inside. They are the essential questions of our time. We call this exercise the jar of truth. It ends up nice. Yeah. It resolves. <laughs> it starts off nice. very haunting, but then it ends up. Here's the thing, though, Paul, because you are a recognized master in having opinions on things. We have modified the jar. That sounds awful. Yeah. Oh, it's not good. We have modified the jar of truth this week. Instead of the jar of truth, we have brought out the jar F truth. 
As you can see, Paul, we took over eight seconds to modify the jar of truth and put an F on it. So we have filled the jar F truth with a number of questions that we think you'd be just the right person to answer. So here's mm -hmm. how we'd like this to go. Uh, if you could please grab a question out of the jar, hand it to our announcer, Elena Passarello. She'll read it, and then let we'd love me, to get Let me your... mix these up. Yeah. All okay. right, Paul has grabbed a question. Paul F. Tompkins, what is your power color? <laughs> I'm not sure what a power color is. Should I know that? What do you think it is? Is there, is there an outfit or a, a pattern or a color that makes you feel really good? Is there something that you mm. put on when you know this is a day that Paul mm. F. Tompkins has to hit it out of the park? Mm -hmm. Gotta go purple. Gotta go purple all the way. Where are my purple people at? <laughs> Let me hear you, people eaters. Please, Paul F. Tompkins, grab another question from the Jar F. Truth. Here we go. Okay. If you were to check into a hotel under a really cool alias, what would that alias be? Oh, probably Dennis J. Peacock. <laughs> <laughs> the name that I think should be my actual name, but isn't. <laughs> I like that there's still a middle initial in it. Of course. You're alien. You'll always. No, I definitely have a middle initial. No matter Absolute. what universe. Okay. Absolutely. I like the idea that. The, the feds are after a guy. He's on the lam. Mm. They call the hotel, and they're like, did you have a Dennis J. Peacock here? And they're like, the guy wearing all purple? <laughs> they're like, yeah, yeah, we got him. He's here. We remember when that guy checked in. <laughs> Wait, so I'm wearing all purple in the power color? I don't know. <laughs> is, this, is this adjacent to the Power Rangers? <laughs> yes. Do, do I have a helmet on yes. in this scenario? What has this Power Ranger done that the feds are after him? All right, one more question from the Jar F Truth. Is it weird to think of wind as nature's air conditioner? I mean, it's not weird per se. It's not helpful. I, th I will say this for wind. I think it is one of my favorite and most underrated weather systems. Really? Yes. I think wind is nice. That, see, I'm surprised. You look, you look aghast. Here's why. Because you are a very bespoke gentleman. You dress very well. You're very put together. Mm -hmm. It seems like the wind would throw all of that into chaos. You think I don't have wind clothes, Luke? <laughs> <laughs> of course I do. That is why you're Paul F. Tompkins and we are not. Paul F. Tompkins, everybody, and the Jar F. Truth. We gotta take a quick break. Uh, this is Livewire from PRI. Don't go anywhere. Hey, thanks this episode to Jonathan Owen of Portland, Oregon, and Joni Massey of Lake Oswego. Jonathan and Joni are part of the Livewire member community, and they are generously supporting us with a donation each month. We are very thankful for that support because without it, we would not be able to do this show. So it turns out it's extremely essential. Thank you so much, Jonathan and Joni, for helping keep Livewire going. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Over there, that's Elena Passarello. We are at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. We're talking about finding your voice this week, and our musical guest found his at a pretty early age, age eight, in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. He started writing his own songs, and he hasn't stopped since. As a singer and songwriter for the band Drive-By Truckers, as well as his solo work, he's come here straight from his daughter's eighth grade graduation. <laughs> Seriously, please welcome Patterson Hood back to Livewire. Patterson, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Did you uh, really just come from your daughter's eighth grade graduation? Yeah, it, it, that's crazy to me. I, the, the, my daughter's now in high school. That's strange. Um, she's lovely, though. Ava, congratulations, Ava, out there. She's um, I'm the luckiest daddy in the world. 
Um, you live here in the Portland area now, right? Moved here four years ago this summer. How does it compare? You're from the South originally. I am. How? 51 years in, in Alabama and Georgia until I, became, until I moved here. How, how does Portland compare to Alabama and Georgia? I, I love it here. I mean, I didn't move here accidentally. I, I went to a lot of trouble. Moving your family cross country, I can tell you, is not for the faint of heart. But, uh, huh. And uh, especially when there's limited funds to do it. And it was very, very difficult. But we've loved being here. And we've been really warmly welcomed. Do you feel like the love of beards in Portland has been a nice kind of soft landing for you because it feels very much like the South? The beards? Yeah, they're very in style here, too, yeah, like, as yeah. of like five years ago. Yeah, when I, when I first grew my beard, they were not in style. Nobody, was, <laughs> nobody thought it was cool when I grew my beard, but uh, it's, been, it's an old beard. <laughs> <laughs> what song are we going to hear? All right, uh, this is a song I wrote about a year ago. It's going to be on our next record, which uh, we have recorded, but it, it won't be out till January. And um, it's um, wrote this song, actually driving cross country with the band on our way to Portland last year, and uh, we uh, stopped to gas up, well, basically for the bus driver to sleep for a few hours in a place called Gillette, Wyoming. And uh, this song, I basically wrote it down as it occurred, as it happened. <laughs> so this song is called "21st Century USA." This is Patterson Hood on Livewire. Parking lot behind Oasis Tan Down the street from the Mexican Restaurant beyond the auto zone And the place is honking payday loans There's a Kmart and a KFC A fitness center and an Applebee's Wells Fargo and a Taco John's Good time bar to get your bad swerve on In a town that's named for razor blades All American but Chinese made Folks working hard for shrinking pay 21st century USA We got coal and methane gas We got jobs where the work is hard And stores to max out your credit cards In a town that ain't nowhere near Just like every town everywhere Folks working hard for shrinking pay Opulence he maintains If Amazon can deliver salvation I'll order it up on my phone With Big Brother watching me always Why must I always feel so alone? For not enough at best Women working just as hard for less They get together late at night at bars And bang each other like crashing cars Working hard but it don't seem enough Callous hearts make even love seem tough Prescription pills to make the pain hurt less Until your callous heart just needs a rest 
Look at your children and you hope and pray They can conjure up a better day And no one remembers how it got that way First century USA Twenty first century USA That's Patterson Hood here on Livewire. All right, that is going to do it for our show. Thank you very much to our guests, Paul F. Tompkins, Anurata Bhagwati, and Patterson Hood. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Fully, and the Jupiter Hotel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development and marketing director. Tim Harkins is our production director. And Christian Sager is our marketing associate. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom, A. Walker Spring, Sam Tucker, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. And our on-air mix is by Corey Shreppel. Thank you so much. As always, to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members this week. Big thanks to member Cindy Thompson of Portland, Oregon. I know Cindy. For more information about our show or how you can get our podcast or get our newsletter, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. For Elena Passarello and the entire Livewire crew, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. PRI Public Radio International.